Welcome to Design Thinking Games, a fantasy and user experience podcast. Each episode, your podcast hosts, Tim Broadwater and Michael Schofield, will examine the player experience of board games, pen and paper role-playing games, live action games, mobile games, and video games. You can find every episode, including this one, on your podcatcher of choice and on the web at designthinkinggames.com. Something we talked about for this episode was we had um, secret things we were going to find out apart from each other or like select and then make each other aware like in this podcast. Correct. Yeah. So <laughs> let me let me set the stage a little bit. Let me know if I'm wrong, but I think this is a relatively common model that folks learn. Um, there's not exactly UX 101 commonly, or m- maybe that's more of a thing now, but this feels like it would belong in that kind of introductor, introduction to UX tutorial or workflow. And that is a model called the UX Honeycomb, which I believe was first introduced by Peter Morville. Yeah. Um, he, uh, I believe he's actually like you. He has a degree in library science, right? And I think then so. He, has, uh, he um, started, I think, Semantic Studios. And I think his background is essentially in information architecture, discoverability, findability. And then my understanding of it, and this is not, this is just recollection, is that... Um, he made an information architecture or IA circle or con- concentric circles for context content and users. And I believe that was in the nineties. And then essentially that eventually became um, the UX honeycomb, which I think is more around 2004. Um, and that's the one that if you just Google UX honeycomb, it's the one that's usable, useful, desirable, accessible, credible, findable, valuable, right? Right. It's the, it's definitely the main one. And what it is is a, it's supposed to look like the inside of a honeycomb where you often see models with these concentric circles, Venn diagrams, etc. cetera. Um, in this case, yeah, uh, uh, effectively that, like when it comes to UX, like it is a net positive. All ships rise and lower with the tide. And it's not simply, I, I think it's, I think one of its primary goals was to sort of disassociate the, or decouple this UX equals look and feel and aesthetics um, notion that I think a lot of folks have. And that, in fact, a lot of job descriptions in the wild have right now where they're looking for UX people, but what they're really looking for are graphic designers. This honeycomb kind of helps show that, well, gosh, the user experience is made up of a whole bunch of things that aren't look and feel. And in fact, you can invest heavily in these non-aesthetic qualities, like the credibility of a thing or the findability of a thing, and not invest so much in the user interface itself and still come away with a net positive experience. Super helpful. Yeah, it's a super helpful model. It's one that like I totally used um, to like in design committees of your, right? To make a point. Um, and it's liberating too. It helps kind of distinguish the graphic designer from the UX designer. They're different things. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think I've used it because I think it helps um, 
with priorities, right? Mm. Um, everyone's always asking for what you're saying, which is like the polish, the razzle dazzle, the UI. Um, <laughs> but you know, the other pieces that are there are, you know, are we being accessible? Is this something that is even valuable? Uh, well, valuable being the center, but is this credible? the perception of it to our users like do they even desire to use this and do they know how to use it um and i think from that we were talking about your ux honeycomb can you give us a little history of that because i think you took it and then kind of altered yeah. it a little bit years ago right yeah yeah uh back in the library days um i think back in the days when you and i did maybe our first webinar together around then um so let's backtrack. So for our audio listeners who aren't looking to anything, um, there are traditionally six facets, six little combs in the uh, in the UX honeycomb in no particular order because I'm doing this from memory. They are uh, desirability, which I think describes sort of the look, feel, the aesthetics, the funness, maybe the gimmickiness, um, like how desirable a thing is. It's accessibility. Boy, that's a really hard one to kind of like boil down. Uh, well, mainly I take that more as like inclusivity. Thank you. That's um, what I was looking as for. As people need uh, peripheral devices or, you know, if they have visual, different visual acuities or disabilities, you know, that piece of that honeycomb yeah. I think d- describes that. It's, it's, it's the answer to the question, can you access or utilize this service across multiple devices? But that's accessibility, the um, findability and discoverability, uh, the ease of which that uh, the information within the service or even information about the service itself can be discovered uh, through search, filter, information architecture, uh, credibility, um, how much trust uh, a user has in the service and more, more specifically the people behind the service. I think traditionally useful is its own honeycomb. It Uh, is. And it's right next to usable. And it's right next to usable. Usable being literally, can you use it? Does the button depress? (laughs) Like, is it, um, uh, it's the spectrum of ease of use, whether it is easy or not. Um, but that, that usability is a factor. So with that in mind, yeah, I made a honeycomb to a different honeycomb built on top of this. Frankly, because after a couple of webinars trying to explain the the honeycomb to you know our higher our colleagues in higher education, uh, there were just some like questions and confusion around aspects like usefulness that um, that I just wanted to clear up. But also, it was at that time and. And I don't think that time has passed. It's still super relevant now where people were considering more. They were asking questions more like, gosh, like what role does privacy, user privacy or ethics, uh, eco-friendliness, et cetera, have in the honeycomb? So in this LibUX honeycomb, library user experience honeycomb that I made, I did a couple of things. One, um, I conflated or I, I, I guess I abstracted useful into and usable into uh, a little bit of a triumvirate that there is um, uh, this was based off Nielsen Norman groups 
definition of usability. And so there's usability, which is specifically like it's learnability, it's ease of use. There's utility. Uh, for instance, something can be very easy to use, but if it has no practical utility, like in the real world, that has some impact. And usefulness is sort of a cumulative of those two. A thing is useful if it is both if it both has utility and is usable. And then the other thing I, the only other thing I did was add ethical to it because Peter Morville makes the point himself that, yo, it's a honeycomb because you can mix, mingle, and add as many different facets of the user experience as you want. The problem with concentric circles is that, yo, it's, um, <laughs> it's kind of finite, right? Like you can't add too many to it. Yeah, I actually like your honeycomb. I, I think useful kind of being a combination of utility and usable makes sense and adding ethical to it. And I also think um, we can put this up in the, you know, a, a picture or a link to it up in the show notes, but uh, you have valuable as being the total output of right. those things. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. Again, it's just that um, the analogy that ships rise with the tide. So the value increases in total. Or decreases, you know, if you don't invest in any of these things, it goes way down. Okay. Yeah. So, so using your uh, honeycomb, um, we challenged each other to find um, a game, tabletop, video game, live action, board game, whatever, that we each, that each other, or like we ourselves thought best represented like an embodiment of this value of this um, UX honeycomb, right? Or just your UX honeycomb. Um, are you ready to reveal what you chose and what I chose? Yeah. I'm curious which one you would start with. Should I start or do you want to start? I almost feel like well, we... I, I wish we had the physical representation of the honeycomb so we could spin it <laughs> and, and pick one well, of the let's facets. Let's start maybe with, with the game. So for me, um, I chose, um, and this is because it's, it's also on my mind right now and I'm playing the crap out of it, um, Dead by Daylight. Oh, yes. So I chose that. It's an asymmetrical survival horror game. Uh, essentially, it's on every platform. Um, it's been out since um, 2016, so it's like seven years in development at this wow. point. Wow, I, I remember when it came out. I can't believe it's been seven years now. And it still it looks, is, it still and they looks keep great, chapter. Yeah. It is amazing. I, I love it, and um, we've talked before, and you know that I'm a huge fan of asymmetrical survival horror, and I'm a huge fan of MOBAs, which are like these massive online battle arenas. And so games like Monster Hunter... Um, Friday the 13th, mm -hmm. Predator Hunting Grounds. Like those games really speak to me because you basically customize your character, how you want him to look, and, and then you give them perks or experience or whatever. And then essentially you go into like a timed battle. Um, and depending on what it is, you know, you're surviving or trying to meet an objective or you're trying to survive. Um, but the asymmetrical survival piece of it is that with Dead by Daylight, similar to Predator Hunting Grounds on Friday the 13th. Five players go in, one of them is a killer or a monster, and the other four are trying to survive. And so 
by surviving, you have to repair... You're kind of trapped in this um, arena, and you have to repair these specific engines, five of them, to op unlock the gate so you can survive. And the whole time, you're hiding from this killer monster, and who is going to pretty much, like capture you, injure you, hang you on a hook, kill you, like any, it's <laughs> as brutal as possible, right? Um, but yeah, that's, that's Dead by Daylight, and I think that really, to me, represents, like, this great usability, great development, um, and meets a lot of these honeycomb pieces. What about you? <sighs> so I have, so I thought more in, like, extremes, and what I ended up with were a number of examples that I think fail in certain parts of the honeycomb and are great in the others. But I think overall is I think one of my favorite games of the decade, man, uh, Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice, which was a, yeah, one of the things I wanted to talk, uh, talk big about Senua's Sacrifice in terms of the honeycomb here is uh, in two parts. Um, one, just in terms of its usability, its ease of use, and the way that uh, that Senua, or the way that they teach you to play through listening to oral, A-U-R-A-L, cues. One of the big things that Cinema Sacrifice did was give you this kind of like 360 degree um, audio experience. The the other extreme of this honeycomb, like just its just its uh, accessibility in or its inclusivity, maybe if we're interpreting accessibility here, and basically creating a character um, who is neural divergent right like whether or not like she hears she hears voices whether or not these are the spirits of her ancestors or not is left up to the user but these voices teach you how to play the game what's the game about for those for those who have not played it before maybe yeah no no, no. With it. um Sen uh, senua is a sixth century celt maybe i think her people are resisting either like anglo-saxon or norse invasion right um and so basically you play as senua she's treated kind of like a like a witch right um Ooh, okay. and yeah because she's a, a seer she has visions see she speaks to those who are imperceivable and la-di-da-di-da -da -da, so like your entire people have been like totally oppressed and senua seeks vengeance right someone has been taken from her and she goes after them um and and it is a descent into questionably madness or a spiritual realm where they where the the spirits and the deities of like the old norse have actually um interwoven themselves in the world and you fight these these creatures these gods um and their spawn or perhaps that's purely how you perceive them and what you've been engaged in all this time is the slaughter of an enemy tribe. Oh my gosh. It's a little crazy. Yeah. I've, I've never played it and I've heard really good things about it, you know, and I know it got a lot of rave reviews. Like a lot of people, 
it's ranked I believe it's uh, it's rated pretty high so then like looking at the honeycomb then like or your honeycomb per se I think we can both say like desirable like people would play the game because it's fun right and so if Senua's Sacrifice has like a 9 out of 10 rating on Steam and a 95% Google like ratio which is <laughs> I'm seeing it does I mean obviously it's fun and you know Dead by Daylight literally has been out for seven years and has a huge player base and, and tons of people still play it on mobile phone and on Switch and PlayStation, Steam, Xbox, you know, whatever. So pre- we could probably skip that one, I'm assuming. Speaking a, a little bit more to Dead by Daylight, concerning accessibility, um, and this is going to be a tangent a little bit, but we're now in, you know, um, 10 years solidly or 20 years solidly into the 21st century. Um, If you're making a game and you're not letting people turn on and turn off rumble on the remote, or you're not letting people invert their Y axis or add subtitles, you're doing something wrong. Uh, And one of the games that I noticed here in the last year that came out, which was really crazy popular was that fallout game, which was, or Fall Guys, not Fallout. Fall Guys. Fall Guys. Mm-hmm. And so essentially you, you make up a character and you go into this thing and you try to race and run through the end, all these weird obstacles. And it pissed me off so much. You cannot invert your Y-axis. There are a huge amount of players, right, who literally come from a pilot kind of um, mm-hmm. mechanics and HUD kind of background. A lot of MMORPGs are built that way to where... You know, when I push forward on the remote, which is up on the control pad, I want to look down. Um, And it's not just like shooting gallery console. So you kind of have to give both, right? Dead by Daylight does all that. Um, Fall Guys did not, which is probably the reason why I didn't play it that long. Um, Because it's so frustrating. Just like when I hand the controller to someone else afterwards and they're like, I need to change the access. (laughs) It's messing me up. You know, you kind of have to provide that. But on top of that, you know, they have, Dead by Daylight, gotten a little bit of trouble um, a while ago because one of their developers was streaming on Twitch. And they basically were talking about, like, we know accessibility is a problem, the community keeps saying it, and um, basically it blew up over the web, right? and where people were just like the developers don't even care that there's people that have different colorblind accessibility issues and and so they fast-tracked it based on the response that they got um so the um the protonope and the tritonope and the deuteronope kind of visual colorblindness acuities they are actually putting into the next patch of the game so you can actually see items that are highlighted with different visual colorblind um you know, kind of measures and so I really like that fact that A, they're listening to their community through the forums but then B, you know if the users are telling you hey yeah. this is something we want to see um, maybe you should prioritize it um, but but in regards to that you know I don't know many games that allow you to do that I know that um, there's a couple different you can control contrast and brightness and and different color modes and games like Ghost of Tsushima. Yeah. But I think we're seeing more games that are now taking that into consideration to where you just can't give people lightness or, or brightness meter. You're you're going to have to kind of give them different things. And if you're not giving them, you know, 
rumble capabilities, captions, you know, um, rumble cues to replace audio cues, different things for different um, visual acuities or color blindness, you know. So that's one of the things that I really liked, I guess, about that sticks out to me for Dead by Daylight. Uh, the other thing is the piece that's on there is that credibility. Oh, um, yeah. And so, you know, if we start thinking about online playing and battling one another and you're choosing, you're going into like a MOBA, uh, matching people of similar skill levels as well as, you know, making sure that it's democratic and fair. We've talked in the past before about, hey, I can just go on World of Warcraft, mine a bunch of gold, and then sell it and email <laughs> it to another person so they don't have to get gold. You know, and you can do that. That's something that's in a lot of MMORPGs to where you can't really, if I can contact another player and send another player something in the game, how are you limiting gold? You know, and, and then like, who do you know in another country who's just farming you know, kind of World of Warcraft currency. And I'm saying World of Warcraft, I'm not saying that they do this, but I mean an MMORPG currency and then selling it for real world cash. And but and you can't do anything like that in in uh, Dead by Daylight. There is no transferring oh, good. currency or the three currencies that it has, which are built on experience, you have to buy yourself or you have to earn it. So it's that model of... Um, you can get everything, but you have to play the crap out of it, or you can use microtransactions to get costume pieces if you want. But the gameplay is the same. There is no advantage to any person for having cash. That's huge. You know? Yeah, that credibility aspect around microtransactions, I think surfaces a lot. I don't think folks use that language, credibility. Um, but I think it's a big part, it, and it comes down to, frankly, like, do you trust when a user or when a developer says, that it's not play to win or pay to win, excuse me. Um, do you trust them or don't you? And I think there's a lot of cases where it really is advantageous to spend money on the game. Although I do think that um, purely anecdotally that the, um, at least when we're talking about like double A and triple A games, that the tide is changing here and a lot of the microtrans microtransactions go to um like like um avatar customization and and stuff like that but i i, I still think it's like like you know when we're talking about Except, mobile games we're definitely talking about mobile games yeah yeah mobile games are definitely the exception there yeah. because i was just checking out nintendo's dr mario which nintendo oh, yeah. has a, custom, a couple cool apps right like for um android and iphones and and um mario kart and Super Mario Run and um, kind of teamed up with Niantic for Pokemon mm -hmm. Go and but let's for Dr. Mario you know it has that timer feature right mm -hmm. which basically says that hey at some point you're gonna have to you can't retry or you ran out of hearts that you have today to try to to cure more viruses or to proceed on the map um, and you're gonna have to wait 15 minutes. But if you don't <laughs> want to wait 15 minutes, you can buy hearts, you know. Oh, and yeah. So it's one of those things. But then also the things you can buy are these things to use inside of like the Tetris-like pill level with the viruses with Dr. Mario to make more things blow up and get rid of more lines. So in that regards, uh, it's kind of like well, you are paying to to like get better to do better at the game. Yeah, you know. And I'm sure there's other games that are just like, 
Candy Crush or like that. Because Pokemon Go is definitely like that. It's just oh, like, sure. hey man, if you are not near <laughs> you know, a post office or a library or a statue or something of significance, uh, you're not going to be able to harvest items, you know, like every couple minutes from these places, these check-ins. So you have to buy them if you're... Yeah, and I think you can nurture... You can you can speed up your, like, egg maturation, <laughs> I think, with uh, raw dollars. Yeah, so that's definitely mobile is, I would say, the ka-ching, ka-ching there. But I would agree with you. Apart from mobile, um, in most other games, you it's the incentive is more for, like, like you said, like Fortnite. It's like, I want to look like... Um, John Wick or a Ninja Turtle, or I want to look like, you know, uh, you know, like I want specific clothes and that's what you're paying for, but it doesn't give you advantage in the game. You know, it's still a level playing field. Credibility was one of those uh, facets that uh, really interests me because I don't think there are a lot of game reviewers who focus on that specifically, but it comes up. So we talked about a little bit about um, we talked about accessibility, credibility, and ethical um, pieces in here. But I, I guess I want to hear from you a little bit more about you know the the usefulness and the findability and the fun mm. or the desirability of sinuous sacrifice. If that's the one that you're nominating, uh, I am. But I like uh, so usefulness. Uh, I am not. I am nominating sinuous sacrifice. But now that we've gone on this tangent of naming. A dozen other games. I'm going to name another. Um, I I struggled with... like If usefulness is utility plus usability, I struggled finding a game. And I want to nominate in terms... Like, to think about it in terms of its utility is uh, this indie game. I don't know. I'm curious if you played it or heard of it called That Dragon Cancer. No. No, I've um, not heard of it. So this is a game that was created by uh, a really small team and it is effectively an autobiographical experience where the, the developers um, their their son was diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer at uh, I think about a year old and it gave him only a really short time to live he survived for four years and then died so they put together this game to tell the emotional side of that story. You have different puzzles and you navigate from one room to the next and playgrounds that morph into hospital rooms and there's always, you know, this kind of like child's laughter somewhere like over the horizon. And it is extremely sad like when i finished the game like i cried it was like that hard ah, i'm getting i'm getting choked up like thinking about it but i'm trying to think of a game in terms of its utility is it fun no like absolutely not it's not fun this is not a fun game to me its chief value is that it either provides a an artful outlet for folks who have experienced like cancer-based death in the family or, or illness-based um, death and provides some kind of like outlet or it provides this kind of educational mapping. It creates neurons uh, that weren't there before to effectively develop a person's empathy. It is a piece of training. It's a piece of emotional training. Um, and 
if I and yeah, to the point to think about this in terms of like Morville's or our honeycomb here, no one would disagree that this is a net positive user experience and is an incredibly sad experience, um, which I think is really interesting to conflate that like a good UX has nothing to do with delight, right? The delight is ancillary. It is a byproduct, but it is not required for good UX. Yeah. Like delight or graphics or yeah. mapping controls, like you said. Or what fun. You, what like, you, yeah. Yeah. It reminds me. Have you ever played the other indie game, What Remains of Edith Finch? Yeah. I've started it. I've never finished it, but yeah, I have it. It's very similar to where like you're literally walking down your family history and that is your family is kind of there's a curse yeah. on your family that everyone is dies mysteriously or goes missing or, or something bad happens to you and and so you're you're kind of the youngest member of this family re-piecing together your past because it was unknown to you and you're just kind of unfolding all of these kind of tragic stories of your life right that you i mean of your relatives that you didn't know mm-hmm. and it really just makes okay the mother either sense of the family or you know like how horrible or painful her life was and why she lived the way she did that was kind of in this you know on the outskirts of civilization like in a weird house that was also part of a tree that also had like weird rooms and different things because of the way that you kind of uncover this history. And I would say it's definitely not like when we talk about desirable meaning or equating to fun, that doesn't, it doesn't always have to be fun. Desirable can also be as it relates mechanically to, well, what's it doing for you as the player? Mm -hmm. Like it can be somber. It can be, a narrative experience it can make you feel and think so i think no that's a good that's a good thought you don't get that in blockbuster games or you really don't triple a mm-hmm. games right and that's why there is a, such a huge market for indie games um and even in this um i don't know if it's a double a or triple a game um i don't think it is but heavy rain have you heard of that game oh i have and as a non-playstation owner i i i'm so sad that i've never played it yeah, I think it's actually out for. Um, um, Is that on like, Steam? I think, maybe. Yeah. I think you can get it on Steam in a addition to PlayStation. It's on Windows and, now. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but essentially, it is a choice given. It's very much like yeah. um, Detroit being human, or. Um, That's what I want to play too. Two Souls, or any game to where it's just a story that you're making choices through. Um, but in that regards, um, Heavy Rain is you are trying to you're t- you're controlling the character from different perspe- different characters from different perspectives. A father um, who's a single father, you know, um, a detective, and uh, this woman, and then essentially, it's it's painful because you're tracking down a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Um, who's captured this single father's son, who this woman is reporting, investigating, and this, and this detective is hoping to find. And, um, but what happens, and, and I'm not going to ruin it, um, but essentially what unfolds is you find out through the course of the game why the serial killer is doing what he's doing. 
And you can't help but empathize. And then that, much like Detroit being human, you going through that process and learning to empathize with, you know, why this is so tragic, why, like Detroit being human, like why we can't treat artificial life like this. Yeah. Um, it affects you change as a player, right? And then at the end of the game, your choices are going to be different. Uh, it's You're not the same person when you get to the end of the game, right? You're not going to be like, oh, destroy all... <laughs> you know, Skynet, destroy all artificial intelligence. And you're not going to be saying like, oh, he's a serial killer, kill him. You know, it's, you're actually going to change um, the outcome of the game based on what you experienced by playing the game. Playing games with a knowledge of these kind of, you know, design thinking constructs is that you can appreciate them in their different facets, right? The honeycomb is effectively a, a kaleidoscope, right? Look at a game through any particular lens, every any particular facet. Yeah, I think by his definition alone, like, um, you know, Peter Morville, this is literally a tool. It's a different way of seeing. It's to your point. It's these different facets. Um, they speak to emotional needs, design needs, business needs. Um, player interaction but it's a way to kind of start looking at how we look at games experience them transform what we're seeing or lets us look or explore a little bit beyond you know what's there and there's all types of games and there's all types of of players for real man buzz buzz (laughs) thank you for listening to the design thinking games podcast To connect with your hosts, Michael or Tim, please go to designthinkinggames.com where you can request topics, ask questions, or see what else is going on. Until next time, game on.